Welcome back to Living on a Changing Planet. My name is Carter Powis. I'm a climate scientist and economist from Toronto, Canada, and I am joined today, as always, by my wonderful co-host, Patrick, who is a clinical psychologist from Oxford, England. I'm particularly excited because today is an opportunity for me to be quiet and not uh, derail the conversation to talk about nerdy climate science topics, because today we have a psychologist as our guest, and that is psychology is something I know nothing about. So Patrick, would you like to introduce Susan? I would love to. Um, She's a lead author on the sixth IPCC assessment report on climate change. Uh, She's a fellow of the American Psychological Association, uh, Society for Environmental Population and Conservation Psychology, and the Society for the Psychological Study of Social Issues. She's on the editorial boards for countless journals, um, and she is a member at large of the American Psychological Association's Board of Directors. She's also something of a professional mentor to me. She's been hugely helpful in, uh, with our book and other projects that we've been involved in, and just being able to learn from the work that she's done uh, these past years. She's been instrumental in my knowledge and understanding of how mental health and planetary health intersect. So I'm absolutely delighted to welcome our guest, Professor Susan Clayton. Susan, hello. Hi, Patrick. Thanks so much for that introduction. And hi, Carter. You you don't have to be, keep completely quiet as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> no, I agree. Excellent. I also I think we're, we're at risk of two psychologists just kind of, we can talk, can't we? We're very, we're, we are professional talkers. Well, in that case, I will do my best to keep you both on track. To start the episode, Susan, you are one of the founders of the field of climate psychology. You were there when it became a field of academic inquiry. Could you talk to us a little bit about what those early days were like and how you got interested in studying the psychology of climate change? Sure. And um, (laughs) yes, I was there. That makes me feel like it's ancient history, but in some sense, it it kind of is. I first started thinking about the psychology of environmental issues and environmental problems in the 90s. Um, I had not been trained in any of this. It wasn't something I was exposed to uh, in my schooling. And again, along with some some colleagues and friends who had similar interests, we would establish, we would try and uh, give presentations at conferences. And there would be, you know, three people in the audience um, because most psychologists were not thinking about environmental issues. And I even did a a survey in also, I think, the the late 90s um, that I sent out to divisions of the American Psychological Association asking them if they had positions on um, environmental issues or climate change. And some of them were very supportive and they said, oh, I'm so glad you're you're raising this issue. But some of the responses, one I remember in particular said, what on earth does psychology have to do with climate change? So that was really uh, an attitude that we had to confront, and I'll say that psychologists were the people who were maybe among the slowest to recognize the connection. So it's been so validating um, to have this more widely recognized as, co- uh, as well, of course, as kind of gratifying because I think psychology is an important part of responding to climate change. And that, that fascinates me that, that, um, that psychology would be among the slowest to, up, you know, slowest to the uptake in this in this arena um and fast and fast forward to now obviously um 
my the, the UK representative psychological professional association, the BPS, and the Association of Clinical Psychologists, and you know obviously the APA and the Australian Psychological Association. Now this is obviously front and centre um, uh, in terms of their their sort of priorities and their practice and um, in businesses and the government level. And um, there's a huge a huge change, but it, it really kind of staggers me to think that um, that that. That would be that would have been the case at that time, you know, that you'd been met with that resistance. Yeah, and I think there are a couple of reasons. One is that um, certainly a lot of us as psychologists were trained in the emphasis on the person extracted from their environment in some sense. So we wanted to be scientific. We wanted to think about fundamental human processes, and the idea was, you know, remember this was before before the internet uh, was widely available or accessible. Um, so you studied people, you know, in classrooms, you studied them in very uh, uh, controlled settings. And what we were kind of told is that that doesn't matter. What you learn is independent of the environment in which people find themselves. And then also, I think psychologists were worried, um, you know, none of them, and this is still probably true, none of us, very few of us have training in environmental um, processes or topics or policies. And so, there was probably a concern that they they didn't want to say this is relevant to something that they felt that they didn't know anything about. Asking from a very much from a layman's perspective, could you tell me about what the key findings or insights have been from the last thirty years of study in climate psychology? What what have we learned about the relationship between mental health and climate change? Um, you know, what are the differences between the emotions that we might feel as a result of climate change versus any other difficult thing in our lives? And is there differences in how a psychologist might treat a patient suffering from climate-related distress versus any other traumatic thing in their lives? Yeah. Um, I, let me provide a little context by just saying, um, as psychology began to do more research to, to speak to or respond to climate change, I would say it, it, the bulk of the research started with an emphasis on behavior and what behaviors people could take to mitigate climate change. Um, and then perhaps a little bit later, also a lot of emphasis on understandings and perceptions of environmental problems and climate change. So there are these other um, kind of sub-branches of psychology that were addressing the issue that it's really been only you know, within maybe, I mean, obviously there, there was some work earlier on, but within the last at most 10 or 15 years that people have started to talk about what you could describe as climate psychology, which is sort of how people's state of mind, how their, their psychological state is affected by climate change and by their awareness of climate change. So the biggest thing we've learned is that it is, you know, that there is a, a, a relationship there between climate change and um, psychological consequences. And um, I, think, I think what most of the work to date has probably been focused on is trying to describe the range of, of ways in which that is true. So um, lots and lots of evidence about impacts of extreme weather events, for example. Um, and um, recently, and it, but uh, very rapidly increasing evidence for um, impacts of things like high temperatures. Um, and then 
there are there are all kinds of other ways in which the climate can affect mental health, the sort of indirect effects that might be associated with involuntary displacement or loss of, of homeland um, or even economic hardships um, that are linked to climate change. What um, has been studied for even a shorter amount of time is, well, what can we do to help people with this? How, what kind of psychological tools are available to help people re- resilient to these impacts? And um, we're, we're just beginning to try and come up, I think, with some answers to that. I'm going to ask you more about what the early findings are with regards to what tools are effective in helping people who are dealing with climate distress, because that's very much the focus of this podcast. But before I do, I found it curious that most of the types of climate distress that you just mentioned seemed very similar to other types of distress that you might experience as a result of other difficulties in your life. So for example, if you live through an extreme weather event and suffer some sort of loss, you lose your house or a family member, um, that is a it's very analogous to other types of loss or trauma that you might experience in life as a result of things other than climate change. So it seems to me that in those cases, psychologists must already have just a wealth of of knowledge surrounding what the emotional consequences are and how to best help people who are struggling with them. I'm wondering if the field also looks at people who have not yet experienced intense trauma or loss as a result of climate change yet. Um, And so their distress is almost entirely anticipatory uh, because that seems to me to be, um, first of all, the case for a lot of people at this point in time, but also uh, just a very different problem set from uh, dealing with trauma, for example. Absolutely. And that's, that's, I would say, um, one of the main ways in which people experience what I would call climate anxiety or climate change anxiety. So, you know, this is one of the things that makes people so interesting as well as challenging to study. They don't just respond to actual experience, but to their perceptions um, and awareness. And just, you know, within the past two or three years, there's been a whole lot of attention to this idea that thinking about climate change is a source of anxiety for many people. And um, lots of surveys, including, you know, in-depth nationally representative surveys, including global surveys that have, you know, studied um, tens of countries, uh, you see very high levels of worry about climate change and people saying things like they expect to be personally affected by it um, to a greater extent than was true, you know, just not that many years ago. Um, so this is, a, it, it, it's a threat. And one of the reasons, I mean, it's, it's a threat. It's, a, it's something that might cause harm. It makes sense that people are anxious about it. But I think um, climate change also represents this uh, kind of existential change in how we think about the world. Um, that is difficult for people to wrap their mind around. It's, it's not just something bad might happen to you. It's that we we grow up thinking that the world is a fairly stable place and and we find out that no the the things we take for granted the very timing of the seasons the you know snow in winter and you know hurricanes being limited to a certain time of year or whatever those kinds of things change so i think that people are 
grappling with this sense. And um, for some people, it's for some people are still not thinking about it. For some people, it's um, it's maybe a little confusing, but not uh, not really distressing. But but there are definitely people for whom it's a real um, almost a you know a mental crisis or emotional crisis to start to think about the idea that the world might be less hospitable in the future than it is now. Which I think leads really nicely into my previous question, which is, can you tell us more about the initial learnings around how to treat people who are suffering from particularly this anticipatory form of climate distress? Do we know anything about what effective interventions are or are there initial hypotheses that are interesting? Yeah, I'll respond quickly and then maybe let Patrick say more about the, the treatment options because that's that's more in his field than mine. Um, but Carter, it sounds like you're becoming a real psychologist here, distinguishing between these different emotions. <laughs> and uh, absolutely, um, both of those emotions, you know, this, this, the, the sadness and grief and the, the anxiety and fear um, exist often in the same person. But uh, there's that fundamental difference that that the grief is about something that you've already lost at some level and the anxiety is about something that you anticipate happening that there's this this level of uncertainty about so um, just recognizing that there's a kind of a complex constellation of emotions that can even include some positive emotions um, is an important part of of helping people i know that susan you and i have talked about this in the past um about the importance of how we how we label and and think about uh climate change anxiety or or the range of climate emotions we experience and this kind of um even the language we use about sort of treatment options and um uh how these how these problems should be cured um as in in some way sort of um invalidating or 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 um there's a conceptual issue there you know that these are um these are normal and rational responses to an existential threat. And I think, Carti, that kind of comes back a lot to your question about how do we treat this? Um, I think we almost need to almost need to sort of ask a slightly different question, which might be sort of how do we support people to channel this? Or, you know, I think, I think more and more we're talking, we're, we're talking about uh, climate anxiety, climate grief, climate, you know, eco-rage, um, climate guilt as being... Um, huge force of energy, and I think Susan, I'm right. I'm I'm, I'm right. You have so much more of the, a wealth of data available to you. But certainly from the studies we've done in the UK, we found that um, climate anxiety, and climate action are really uh, uh, positively correlated. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So that raises the question straight away of kind of is this something to be cured or treated, um, or, or, or or harnessed or channelled or and I don't know, Susan. What would what, what you make of this? Because this is there's a debate that's ongoing, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And I'm really glad you this. you raised that issue of of not wanting to say that because you're anxious about climate change, you've got a mental health problem. And and the other part of that is, if it's the problem of the individual, then it's fixed at the individual level. Whereas what we really need, of course, is systemic changes. So um, it's important to to not let this be just a mental health problem. Uh, that said, you know, Carter, Carter wants to know what we can do for individuals. And, and certainly there are some things that, that can be done. And I think one of the questions is, um, how is it being experienced by that individual? And it will depend on their level of 
worry, but also on other kinds of vulnerabilities they might have and how much support, how, much, how many sources of strength and support they have as well. Um, so the, the needs of, of each individual will be different. But for people who's, who are finding their emotions overwhelming, um, certainly there are lots of techniques psychologists have used and can use to help them kind of just get on top of their emotions, you know, regulate their emotions, take step back, steps back from the news, um, deep breathing, mindfulness, going out for walks, those kinds of things. Um, so I think at that, in that sense, um, sometimes it's going to be helpful to respond to this as similarly to other sources of anxiety. I find that really useful uh, to know that it's not about finding ways to not make yourself feel anxious. It's, it's not about treating anxiety as a problem. It's about managing the anxiety effectively. And because of that, all of the tools that have been developed in other areas of psychology for managing difficult emotions are directly applicable. I, I think that's a really great insight. Um, I particularly like your mentioning of deep breathing exercises. I was first introduced to the wizardry of deep breathing at a young age through martial arts practice, actually. Um, and it is so effective at changing your emotional state that I read up on why it works later in life. And I find it really interesting that the human body is a, a two-way system by which I mean you... Your mental state can influence your physiology, but your physiology can also influence your mental state. So you can experience something distressing or think about something distressing and your body responds. You, your heart rate increases, your, your breathing gets shallower and faster, your blood pressure rises, cortisol is released into your bloodstream, your muscles tense. The sympathetic nervous system takes over. And that tends to then influence your, your thinking. You tend to continue to ruminate or focus on the thing that was distressing to figure out how much of a threat it is. But equally, if you force your body to adapt a different set of, of symptoms or conditions, so you sit down, you manually slow your breathing and deepen your breathing, uh, the whole thing unravels backwards. Your heart rate slows, your blood, blood pressure uh, drops, um, the release of cortisol lessens, and you the, the parasympathetic nervous system takes over. And that also affects your thinking. It makes it easier to break difficult thought loops. Um, and it, I did some work on... Um, high-performance teams in the context of the military. And uh, deep breathing exercises is actually one of the tools that high-performing um, military members use to, to, to optimize their stress response. So in some respects, it's very good to have some level of sympathetic nervous response because um, your performance tends to increase. Your body is designed to improve physical performance when it detects a threat. Um, and, and so that's important. But it's also true 
that having too intense a, a sympathetic nervous system response degrades your performance. So being too tense, um, having too high a heart rate, having uh, too much adrenaline, too much cortisol released in your system. Um, and so this, it's not, it's not like a light switch. It's not that you're either, you're either in a sympathetic state or you're in a parasympathetic, parasympathetic state. It's a spectrum. And you can use this deep breathing exercise to locate yourself essentially wherever you want on the spectrum. Um, and so th there's actually training that you can do to determine how far along that spectrum you are and then use deep breathing to relocate yourself to a more optimal position based on what you want to do. So if you just want to be relaxed, you can take it all the way down to the far end of the spectrum. But if you just if you are looking to optimize performance, it's more about locating yourself along the sympathetic side. Um, anyway, sorry, I've I've gotten way off track now. I just wanted to note that it was really helpful to know that there is no silver bullet needed to make anxiety go away. That's an that's an unhelpful and unrealistic goal. It's much more about taking tools that already exist for managing difficult emotions effectively. Yeah, I, I was going to say this get ba gets back to what Patrick was saying about, you know, climate anxiety and climate distress should not be pathologized. They are normal and appropriate reactions to the state of the world. So um, absolutely, you don't want to tell people that their anxiety is misplaced. In fact, um, one thing that's often recommended for helping people deal with with climate-related anxieties to validate their feelings because part of the problem can be that it's not socially recognized. But that, um, so what can we add to that? How can we go beyond just saying, yep, you're right, be anxious. Um, part of it can be adding this sense of, I think, efficacy. And this, uh, you know, gets to the issue of, of the relationship with activism or other forms of, of behavioral engagement that can really give people it can transform them from somebody who is the passive recipient of bad things, just waiting for bad things to happen, to somebody who is actively um, engaged in the problem. And even if they don't expect to be able to, to solve it, and you know, none of us can as individuals, um, it changes your perception of yourself and your relationship to the environment in a really important way. So um, increasing sense of efficacy by encouraging that sort of, yes, good for you, you're acknowledging the problem, um, that can be a source of strength and not just a source of, of weakness. Uh, this is, this is, I was just actually reading about this recently. The, I, I don't know where, but the idea that uh, voluntarily, I believe there was a study done that, that showed that voluntarily undergoing something traumatic and having something traumatic done to you uh, is, are actually encoded differently in your brain. The response is very different. One being far more productive than the other. I, I think the result was, you know, one is much more likely to lead to personal growth than the other. So, I mean, what you're saying there, yeah, makes makes perfect sense. And I think in that way, it, it, the, the parallels continue for me in terms of the similarities between planetary health if you like and, and chronic health uh, or, or, or sort of chronic illness and and how for so I worked in sort of physical health settings for a long time and we'd have very similar conversations in that regard saying actually well this we can't take this illness away but actually the people who um 
who the people who fared the best from emotionally but and psychologically, but also in terms of their physical health, were those who had that sense of agency and self-efficacy. You know, had that sort of internal locus of control. We might say to kind of, you know, who would still think, even though that you know there are things I can't change about this, but actually there are there are things that I can still do nonetheless. Um, and working within the bounds and parameters that existed and were possible for them would 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 lead to kind of a much greater sense of, of psychological wellness, you know, whatever that, whatever that means. And I really kind of see that transposing over into, into, into the environment, you know, and um, we always used to say that, uh, you know, we're moving from climate anxiety to climate action, but what we're sort of coming to understand more recently is that they they can co they coexist often, you know, we might continue we might be heavily involved in activism or, or uh, devoting a lot of our time and energy towards uh, kind of environmental conservation projects um, and still feel climate anxiety. Does that mean that these projects are unsuccessful or does it mean that the two things exist at the same time? I, you know, I, I, I don't know. Yeah, and to get back to the point you made earlier, Carter, I think there is the risk that getting involved in, in some kind of activism um, can maintain your focus on climate change. It's harder to forget about it. Uh, so it may, at that level, increase your anxiety. So um, it's, uh, several people have, have kind of pointed this out. We need, to, we need to think about individual mental health, but we need to think about it as um, not the only goal. It has to be coexist alongside planetary health. So if you just wanted people to be not anxious, you'd try and help them forget about the problem, but uh, that's not a good strategy. So um, kind of allowing some level of anxiety to continue to exist um, is, is probably what we need to do. Susan, you said something a couple of minutes ago about part of the problem with climate anxiety is people feel alone with their struggle. And that resonated with me very strongly. So many of the people that have come to me and asked to speak about climate change because they're worried about it, have expressed some version of almost feeling like a break with reality because they're wandering around thinking, you know, it's the end of the world, but everyone else is acting like that's not the case and it makes them feel <laughs> insane. Um, and I want to I dig into this more deeply because I think this is actually maybe the crux of climate distress right here is this, this feeling of isolation, even though it's widespread. Everyone feels alone. We're walking around alone with this struggle, even though everyone feels it. Um, but before we get into that, I'd love to get your opinion on why you think there is such a strong social stigma against admitting that you are distressed about climate change, because it seems like that is such a major contributor to the magnitude of the problem. If people could just admit what they were feeling, that it feels like things would be a, a lot better. And likely we would probably be taking more climate action if collectively we were all speaking to each other and saying, wow, I'm really scared. Research has totally um, demonstrated, at least in the US, I'm not sure I've seen any from other countries, that people don't realize how concerned other people are. They underestimate the, the degree of concern from others. And part of that is again, primarily in the U.S., but not only in the U.S., this politicization of climate change. So people 
might not want to talk about it because they're afraid it will be seen as um, as making a political statement. It will lead to conflict, so they're they're just quiet. Um, I think it's also part of a more general problem, uh, a, a general tendency, which is that it might be fair to describe as a status quo bias. We assume that things are going to continue pretty much the same as normal. And if something seems a little bit odd, uh, we might, a little bit off, um, look around to see what other people are doing and see that they are not responding. Um, so we think, oh, okay, everything's fine. Because it's it's embarrassing to be the one who kind of raises your hand and says, I'm sorry, we're, we're facing an, an emergency that sort of... Uh, it's not a role people want to take on for themselves. So we're all looking to see what other people are doing before we do anything ourselves. But the trouble is they're also looking to us. So the result is that fewer people are taking action. And there's what's been described as a kind of collective ignorance of the problem where everybody individually is worried, but they don't recognize those levels of worry in other people. So they don't talk about it. So on, on that note, Susan, we normally ask this question actually at the at the top of the episode, but I just had to jump straight in and ask all the kind of psychology questions. But for you personally, kind of going back going back to um, the very first time that you kind of um, became aware of the climate crisis or global warming or and obviously this is this has been a a central part of the work that you've you've done as a psychologist has been in and around this this issue, but kind of before it entered into your professional sphere at a personal level, can you remember what it was like to first learn about the the climate and ecological crisis? Well, it's it's a little bit embarrassing. I feel that I should have an aha moment to describe, but in fact, I don't remember when I first learned. Um, you know, I, I I grew up during an era in which there was increasing awareness of environmental problems, pollution, um, you know, threats to biodiversity and uh, and species loss. And so it, it essentially was something I just always took for granted. The, you know, the climate, the environment uh, is getting worse. We need to do something to protect it. And maybe that's why, um, you know, at some point, maybe in high school, maybe in college, I learned more about climate change. But it didn't strike me as something fundamentally different. Um, like many people, I think it's, it seemed to me a threat that was somewhat distant, um, that we should do something about, but uh, that we had time um, time to rally the troops, time to you know create uh, new policies. And I did not, in those early days, really think about how fundamental an impact it could have. Um, I think my so so most of the time, my emotional response um, is, is fairly muted, which again, I, I feel kind of embarrassed to, to convey. Um, but I think it's, you know, partly due to the fact that I, I am engaged with the issue. So I don't just sit around and think about it. I, I, and I feel that I'm hopefully contributing to at least raising awareness about it and maybe, uh, helping with solutions at some level. But I will say that when I feel most sad and, 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 um, and or anxious um, tends to be when I think about uh, the future for younger people. And um, I have children, um, and I've been involved in research that has surveyed younger people. And I will say that 
you know, the study that um, was published last uh, last fall in the Lancet that was headed by Carolyn Hickman. When we saw the level of pessimism that young people around the world were expressing, I knew that climate activists were sad, but I had no idea how widespread these sort of really negative uh, perceptions of the future were. That was that was uh, that took me aback, and um, sometimes I've had conversations with uh, one of my children in which similar things, I, I asked them about the future and, and their level of pessimism is greater than I expected. And I teach college students, so I'm, you know, I'm constantly interacting with this age group. Um, so, yes, I, I usually just focus on the, you know, what am I doing today? What do I hope to do this year or next year? Um, but when I start to think, um, you know, a decade or two into the future, that's when my emotions get much stronger. It's really interesting to hear you say, uh, talk about the, that study. I was going to ask you about that study uh, in a second, but how your, um, your experience of the research process was so personal. You know, actually when the data came in, and this, Carter, this is, this is again kind of a, it's one of the, one of our, the things we're really trying to achieve from this series, right, is to kind of, uh, bridge that gap between the science, the data and the feelings, you know, and that it's a little microcosm example you gave there of actually what it was like for you to hear the emotional experiences of young people around the world um, and how that, and how that resonated for you as a researcher. Um, yeah, these are, these are the kind of crucial conversations that we all need to be having. Um, Tell me about the, okay, so this we call, I call this the 10,000 young people study. Um, it was a game changer, it, you know, not just for me, but, you know, seemingly everywhere. I was, at the, around the time it was published, I was watching uh, Stephen Colbert, you know, The Late Show. <laughs> and he was talking about it. And, I, and that was like a landmark moment for me where I thought, actually, this is, this is an incredibly, I mean, the reach of this study just phenomenal. So by way of context, 10,000 young people from 10 countries around the world, spanning the global north and the global south, um, were interviewed by you and your colleagues. And tell me a little bit about, about uh, what you found in that study and, what, and why you think it became so significant and why it was so, everyone was talking about it. It clearly resonated globally. Uh, and why you think that might be? Well, I think the... Um the answer to the last question is really that it was 10,000 people, that it was global, that it did include um, countries that are often not studied. Um, so we, we tried to balance out, you know, more developed countries, less developed countries, Western countries, Eastern countries, um, some that were more strongly affected by climate change, some that were less strongly directly affected. So included the Philippines, Nigeria, Brazil, India, the U.S., Finland, um, you know, other European countries. So it was such, it was so broad in scope. And often, certainly in my research, um, uh, we rely on samples that aren't necessarily representative. And, uh, you know, you hear what people who are engaged in climate activism has to say, and that's very important. But this sample was not climate activists. It was just, it, it wasn't fully representative because it was an online study. So it dependent on the people who had access to the internet, but it wasn't chosen from climate activists. It was just a range of opinions. Um, 
to see that level of pessimism. And if I'm remembering from the top of my head, it was something like more than 80% around the globe said that they were at least highly concerned about climate change. And close to 50% said it was already affecting their functioning. And then they were endorsing statements like um, humanity is doomed. I mean, a significant proportion said, yes, they, they, they thought that. They thought that people had, were failing to save the planet. Um, they were very uh, dismissive about governmental attempts to respond to climate change. They said the governments are betraying young people, that they're failing, that they're not attending to the science. So I think it was, um, it was just the kind of straightforwardness. There was no subtlety to some of these results. They were just very straightforward. Um, and yes, it, and, and maybe because it was about the time um, of the Conference of Parties in Glasgow. Um, uh, so it was released, it was published a, a month or two before that. Um, the IPCC uh, sixth assessment report was being released um, the first part of it last fall. So there was a great deal of attention being paid to climate change as a global issue at that time, which may have helped also with the, um, the attention to the results of the study. For those of our listeners that are interested, we will link the study in the show notes. Uh, Susan, I'm mindful that we're almost out of time. So one last question for you. You are constantly immersed in data about how upset everyone is about climate change. How do you personally stay resilient? Are there any practices or things that you do to keep yourself functional and protected against the, you know, the possible negative effects of constantly being exposed to disturbing things? Yeah, and I think the things that are hopefully allowing me to maintain my mental health or the same kinds of things that uh, would be helpful for everyone. And one is um, that that feeling of efficacy that we talked about for, before. So I do feel that, um, you know, I am not going to solve anything all by myself, but I think my work is contributing to a society that, that pays more attention and responds more effectively to climate change. Um, very much that I feel connected to others, that I have a community, um, you know, in, including you, Patrick, uh, people who I know are working on this issue. And the fact that I know so many um, smart people are not just caring about it, but are doing something about it. And, you know, I have a variety of opportunities to talk with them um, really helps me feel not alone. And um, and then just maintaining a sense of hope, which is linked to to the fact that I know so many smart people are paying attention and trying to uh, trying to do something to improve our response to climate change. And it helps that I have been doing this, you know, that I have been a professional for you know several decades now. I've seen big changes. I remember, as I said a minute ago, the world before the internet. I remember the world before smartphones. Um, certainly remember the world before the pandemic. And I know that things can change really quickly. So that is one thing that gives me hope. And I, I think things are beginning to change. Susan, I think that's a wonderful place to end the episode. Thank you so much for agreeing to speak with us today. Uh, I think this is just a wonderful contribution to season one. And uh, best of luck with, with your continued research and all of your projects. All right. Well, I'm honored to be a part of it. So thanks for the invitation. 
and best of luck with your future episodes. All right, episode nine, getting so close to the end. Susan Clayton, Patrick, this has got to be one of your favorite episodes. Yeah, what a lovely way for her to finish by saying about how uh, about the power of connection and how and how I, I remember I remember the uh, you know after recording that episode feeling really like um, personally kind of touched and moved that she made the point of saying that at the end that like she feels connection to people people like us. You mean. After you know. recording the episode 10 minutes ago when we just got off the call <laughs> with her, right? Definitely not. That's how it sounds, I guess, to our, to our listeners. Definitely not seven <laughs> months ago <laughs> or whatever it was. When we, when we Susan did. was one of, our early, one of our early recordings, but has featured later in the season. It's like telling people Santa Claus doesn't exist, Patrick. You can't, you can't ruin the mystery that the magic that we do this all off the top of our heads. There's no thinking or planning whatsoever. <laughs> We're definitely this smart and funny. In <laughs> all right. For this outro, I wanted to do something topical. So over the past week, there's been an unprecedented amount of the Canadian boreal forest on fire. The number of square kilometers burned by this point in the year is just absolutely ridiculous when you look at it in terms of what is normal historically. And smoke from these wildfires have been pushed southward and have uh, blanketed many of the largest cities on the east coast of North America, causing very severe air quality issues, turning the air orange, um, creating all sorts of wonderful uh, and terrifying apocalyptic style photographs. And for a lot of people living on the East Coast of North America, uh, this is one of the, if not the first, very visceral, disruptive uh, climate impact that they have experienced in their lives. They've, of course, experienced more mild winters and more extreme summer temperatures, but in terms of disruption to day-to-day life and sort of visceral power, this is a sort of new standalone event that people on the West Coast of North America have been dealing with for oh, at least a decade, if not more. Um, what I want to talk about with you, Patrick, is we've talked about all sorts of management strategies for more long-term, um, more insidious forms of climate distress. I want to talk about the immediate form of climate distress. When you wake up you look out your window and you can't see the building next to you because of the amount of particulate matter in the air and you immediately feel afraid. That that immediate emotional reaction can be very intense and very disruptive. What can people do to better manage their feelings in that moment? And how should we think about managing that kind of response? Yeah, well, yeah, I mean, I mean, in, t- in terms of, <laughs> I mean, for, ex- for example, in other sort of, if we're looking at other kind of traumatic events, 
if someone's been through something traumatic, it isn't necessarily the case that they need to go visit a psychologist straight away. Um, it's much more sort of, you know, so for a lot of people, it's a little ways down the line. If, you know, and also, you know, we have, we have an acute trauma response, right? This is, this is something that um, kind of acute stress, let's call it, in the immediate aftermath of something trauma, traumatic and destabilizing happening. So we want to be, again, sort of taking a non-pathologizing approach to that, helping people understand that's a normal, a normal immediate reaction to trauma, right? But then a ways down the line, um, if, the, if it's still, if the problem's still persisting, if people are noticing themselves kind of feeling highly activated, highly triggered by sort of memories about what happened or, um, and is noticing their mood is continuing to be really effective, that's when we might get involved and say, okay, is there, is there an ongoing sort of chronic uh, trauma response, you know, along the lines of PTSD? Um, so again, when we get into these, you know, after in the immediate after effects of something traumatic happening, yeah, it's one of the most reassuring things people can hear is, yeah, actually, if you're having a really, a really acute response, anxiety, trauma, you know, um, to some degree, that's, that's normal. Okay. I've, I've asked this question a couple of times to, to you and Susan throughout this episode, some version of this question. And I think what's going on is I'm not understanding because you've both been very careful to say, every time I raise this to say, hey, let's be very clear about two different things. First of all, if you experience a, a climate event and you are scared, or when you think about climate change, you feel distress, that is completely normal. And to some extent, there are no treatment options or we shouldn't even be discussing treatment because it's not pathological. There's nothing wrong with you. It is a completely rational, normal response to something that is to an extern- a real external threat. Um, and so I think I need to be careful here in my questions in that it, it seems like um, we have covered in this episode, you know, what are the options for managing intense emotions that are rational and normal. Susan mentioned the big ones. There's breathing and relaxation exercises, meditation, exposure to nature, um, changing your your environment. Uh, even to some extent, distraction can be healthy. Um, let's focus on something that we didn't get into in the episode Let's focus on the cases where there is something pathological going on, where um, the impact of a given event or climate change goes beyond what is normal or logical and starts really negatively affecting someone. How does what does the treatment look like in that case? Yeah, and it's interesting, isn't it? So we talked earlier about chronic kind of rump, you know, that sort of uh, climate anxiety or eco distress that like rumbles in the background, almost as a sort of you know a sort of uh, fairly like a pedal note or a drone. Oh, for some people, this is this is the case. It can actually be pretty much, all, you know, all right and getting on with life. And then something will happen, like you said, a, a forest fire that they might be directly, they, they may be able to see out, that, out of their window if they're directly affected, or they may just be learning about it. Or if there's a, you know, or not a new, a new IPCC report is, 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 you know, or there's, you know, something like a, you know, a COP um, meeting that with, with, whose outcome isn't as successful. Right? These sorts of things that can kind of, um, the big events throughout the year that can be triggering for people. Um, interestingly, we're kind of we're working on developing some kind of responsive tools and things that we, that people that people can have access to, like, like after these events, just to help 
kind of bring into focus how they, you know, the things they need to remember to do or not do in order to cope with, with you know, with that, with the immediacy of that. So for a lot of people, it's about not absolutely not, you know, staying away from articles about forest fires. <laughs> if that, you know, if that's, you know, we, we published a paper in the UK last year that really that proved that, you know, the biggest predictor of climate anxiety was climate information seeking behavior. So you can get really get stuck in this cycle, right? So probably disconnecting um, as best you can. Uh, and then just leaning into what works for you. I mean, it's, that's a really vague thing to say, but, you know, what people tend to find is that, you know, actually reaching out to the people that it's important to reach out to, knowing that it's important to disengage, take, you know, taking some form of, uh individual or even better collective action if you can you know cut you know use this use this as a motivator to bring people together um around an issue um devote a little bit of your time to that but but equally be you know knowing that it's important not to read every article about the forest fires uh, it's, it's very it's it's a, a, quite a low ceiling at which that stops being helpful got it and one other thing I'll mention, which we have talked about before, I don't remember which episode, um, the idea of uh, the more that you let chronic anxiety or distress limit or shrink the boundaries of your life, stop you from doing the things you would otherwise do to have fun, seeing your friends or going out to do your hobbies, play sports, um, play music, whatever it is that you do, the more powerful they become. And so really focusing on not on continuing to do the things that you would otherwise do despite the fact that you feel negative emotions or difficult emotions. Um, I, I think worthwhile adding here, that's something else I think that ends up being very useful or, or is, is very useful for me at least. Um, okay. So maybe to close the episode, I guess I'll try and summarize what I took away from, from the, from this conversation, which is, Climate change is, is going to happen. It's happening now. And even in the best case scenario, it's going to continue to happen for a long time. And we are all going to be exposed to scary, potentially traumatic, uh, extreme weather events uh, that become increasingly worse and happen increasingly often. And many, many aspects of our lives are going to change as a result. And we are going to feel upset and scared collectively as that happens. And all of that is normal. And there's nothing that we can do about it. So really, it comes down to accepting the fact that those things are going to happen. You're going to feel those ways. And life needs to go on. You still need to live your life, do the things that, give, that bring you joy, um, release the desire to have control over things that you don't and really focus on focus on the things you can control, which is continuing to, to find joy and meaning in your life and continuing to take action. Because even though all those things I just mentioned are now unavoidable, there is so much that is still avoidable. <laughs> uh, the absolute worst and most catastrophic consequences of climate change are absolutely still avoidable, providing that we get down to work now. So some combination of taking action and releasing control. And of course, all of the tactical things we talked about, breathing, meditation, finding time in nature, stuff that helps you manage the 
immediate stress response. Okay, uh, next week we have a conversation with Don Wubbles, who is a very prominent climate scientist who's been working in atmospheric physics since the 80s um, and who was the co-lead of the fourth U.S. National Climate Assessment, which was published in 2018 uh, by the Trump administration. Um, So really looking forward to a very interesting conversation about the history of climate science, climate communication, especially the difficulties of climate communication in difficult circumstances. Uh, In the meantime, let's roll broccoli. Thank you as always to Totally Enormous Extinct Dinosaurs for letting us use his excellent music. And thank you all for listening. We will see you next week. Thank you.